Welcome to Toward Wholeness, everyone, and it is my great joy to uh, introduce our guest for today. My name is Abby Odio, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Toward Wholeness podcast, and our guest is someone we are welcoming back for a second time, um, Gail Boss. Gail, thank you for being here. It is a delight to be able to converse with you again. Thank you, Abby. It's a pleasure and an honor for me to come back. So our first conversation centered on Advent and some of the work that you have done around the season of darkness and winter and the wisdom of that. And the second book, I don't, I don't actually know which, which book came first, but you have a book called Wild Hope, which centers on stories around Lent. And both Richard and I got our hands on a copy of that book after our first interview and have been reading it and enjoying it and learning from it. And it only made sense that we would revisit you and kind of dig deeper into some of the the wisdom that this book offers the world. So we're excited to do that today. Just by way of introduction, the stories that Gail offers in this book are centered around uh, creatures who are disappearing from the earth tragically as a result really of kind of a human, I would say, action and inaction <laughs> in some ways. And so each chapter focuses on an animal that is either becoming extinct or has become extinct. Is that correct, Gail? I don't think there are any in the book that are actually extinct quite yet. <laughs> That's okay. a little bit of wild hope that it holds out, that there are sure. actions we can take yet to save even those on the very brink. Sure. And thanks for that clarification. And I haven't read the entire book. I'm about halfway through. I just finished the chapter on the black-footed ferret, Mm -hmm. which is my favorite chapter. And I am excited to ask a couple questions about that particular bit. But one of the things, one of the ways this book has been so helpful for me is that I have grown up and even in kind of my early adulthood years, have loved the outdoors. I've loved the mountains. I've loved the ocean. And I realized in reading these offerings that I haven't paid much attention to animals, to the animal kingdom, to God's creation, aside from how they kind of enhanced my experience of the outdoors, if that makes sense. But this book has really been an invitation to Uh, view these creatures and understand them kind of in their own right as um, they offer gifts to the world beyond just kind of this backdrop of beauty to (laughs) human enjoyment. And so for me, that has just been this, I would say, gentle conviction and nudge towards kind of my understanding of creation and creation care. And so I thank you for that just on a real personal level. But I want to dive now into really talking about the season of Lent. Um, You write so poetically that uh, Lent means to sort of rise from our self-absorption and that historically the church Jews, the Noah's Ark narrative during the Lent season. I'd love to just hear you talk more about how our awareness of extinction, mass extinction of so many species applies to Lent and how that can really help us in this season move beyond ourselves and ultimately deeper in into Christ. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wrote this book on the vanishing species of the earth for Lent 
because I saw it was a perfect fit, a perfect subject. Our English word, our contemporary English word, Lent, comes from an old English word, Lenkten, which means springtime. And that old English word, Lenkten, in turn, comes from an old West Germanic word, which I'll probably butcher, Langitenaz. And that means the lengthening of days. So you can see that our word Lent in our current English usage is derived at its root from the lengthening of days, springtime. And things made of earth, as we all know, in springtime are designed to soften and open and grow. We are made of earth, too, and that's what we are designed in Lent to do. And that's what all the traditions of the church have been designed for. In Lent, we are given these practices that are designed to open us up, to crack us open, the way the earth cracks open to new seeds and the way eggs break open for new chicks and animals break out of their dens. It's all about, and it can be a rather violent movement, this breaking and opening. And it's also a softening. Well, what happens to human beings when we open and soften and grow. Our defenses, this husk that we wear around ourselves, falls away and we suddenly become aware of others beyond ourselves. And when we become aware of others beyond ourselves, then we become aware of their suffering. Mm. And the suffering of wild creatures these wild innocents, I call them, is all around us. Biologists tell us that we are now in the middle of the sixth mass extinction of species. Before mm. this time, there have been five other mass extinctions, but they've been all caused by geological cataclysms of one kind or another, like an Earth asteroid collision or tectonic plate shift. The mm. cataclysm we're now in has been caused by people and our self-absorption, primarily our overconsumption of everything from fossil fuels to plastics. Mm. And we are making life untenable for species mm. on the earth. The UN has warned that up to a million species, a million, are in danger of extinction, some of them within the next few decades, because of the way we live. So this season of Lent is about growing and softening. But as soon as we do that, we begin to suffer because we see the suffering that we're causing other creatures who have not brought this on themselves, who suffer as the Christ does, innocently, sacrificially. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel like there's so much there that I'd love to just dig into deeper at our, our community where Richard and I serve and pastor, we're doing a series for Lent where we follow Israel's journey from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. But that idea of this breaking open, there's a gentleness to it and there's a violence to it. Like there is a, it's not an easy journey moving beyond ourselves. And it's where growth and goodness and, and greenery <laughs> always lies on the far side of the wilderness. And yet, just as I've, I've been kind of processing my own journey through Lent, 
there are so many lesser substitutes between here and there. And I think one of the things we realize, and I think your your book has helped me to see with greater clarity, is that not only do we suffer when those lesser substitutes keep us from God, but the world around us actually suffers as well. And so the importance of this journey, we can't be overstated <laughs> for, not, for not only us as humans, but for all of creation. So I think that's one of the things that your writing captures so beautifully is this idea of interrelatedness, that, that all creation is connected. It, it reminds me of Colossians 1. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how the church has missed this for so long or, or why the church has has missed this. I know for me, it certainly wasn't a part of kind of my formation as a child around how we interact with the world and the species that inhabit it. So I'd love any insight or thoughts you have around that. Yeah, the whole church hasn't missed it. Um, yeah. <laughs> certainly, certainly the dominant arm of the church has missed it. I mean, the desert, Abbas and Amas, Celtic Christians, the mystics like Francis, Meister Eckhart, doctors of the church like Hildegard and Bonaventure. It's, mm. That stream has never died in Christianity. I think, though, you're exactly right, Abby, that the church as, as a whole largely has missed it um, mm. because we took to domination very well. Mm. Um, and that's just our fallen, sinful, ego nature at work. We adopted this dominating hierarchical structure within the church. And so then it just from there extended to all creation. What could be easier to dominate than an animal? So we have not, while we have, I'm sorry to say, paid lip service in too many instances to Jesus's call to lose your life in order to save it. Right. In fact, in our actions, we have all been all about saving our lives from the personal level to the institutional level, to asserting our power and dominance so that we have interpreted Genesis, the creation account, as have dominion over the creatures, as have dominance over, have power over, exert force over for your own benefit rather than care for, parent love the creation as I love them, hmm. as God loves them. And so I, I think it's just an, one of those outgrowths of our fallen nature that insists on exalting the ego rather than abandoning ourselves to the love of God. Right. I, As you were talking, I'm thinking of a book that I'm reading in parallel with Wild Hope called Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know if you've hmm. heard of that. Um, oh, sure. Written by Robin Wall, uh, I think Kim. Uh, yeah. And she poignantly kind of expresses what you just said. And it it's a reminder for me that so much of Native and Indigenous folks, their spiritual, spirituality has really preserved this idea that humans are not here to dominate. And I think that's their their lived expression of kind of the pre-fall relational dynamic that God intended for the world is such a gift to <laughs> the rest of us and one that I feel like we have not received with grace and in- integrity. And so, yeah, thank you for pointing out that there there are these pockets where I think offers a bit of hope 
your first chapter is about the orangutan and um, how it's threatened by the loss of the rainforest, which is disappearing in part because of kind of human lust for palm oil. And this sort of naturally has me thinking about consumer choices as a spiritual discipline. I think it fits with Lent. You know, oftentimes we give something up, but again, it's more about me and my formation than about kind of the interconnectedness and how the the world flourishes when my consumer choices are more aligned with God's kingdom and God's invitation. So I wonder if you could give me a few more examples of how your personal consumer choices have been challenged or changed by the writing of this book, but I know it's it's more of a, it's a longer journey than that for you, <laughs> really yeah. kind of your life and your work. Yeah. I'll take a step back a minute and say, of course, those two things are intertwined. My personal spiritual formation is altogether tied up in choices I make for the world because I become my deepest Christ-like self when I'm living beyond myself, when I'm living in love for others. And so those two things certainly are not separated. And if we are making choices for Lent to give up things only so that we see some little what we think is um, change in our addictive behaviors, it's not the true kind of sacrificial love that Christ calls us to, which always is about moving beyond ourselves for others. Hmm. Hmm. Um, As for consumer choices, yeah, with you, when I read about, when I was researching the book and read about the massive loss of the rainforests in Indonesia, the only home of the orangutans, for the sake of providing palm oil around the world, but largely to the West. Um, I was cut to the quick and I had to begin draining palm oil from my life. Everything from the foods I buy, I read labels, I've learned what other names palm oil is disguised by so that we don't know that there's palm oil in something. Everything from the food choices I make to personal care products to cleaning products just this past weekend. And it's an ongoing journey. Just this past weekend, I ordered palm oil-free, plastic-free laundry detergent from a little company in Minnesota and corresponded with the owner. So it also begins to foster human connection. I feel like I've made a friend in Minnesota. Sure. So that's a one example where you begin to make these wiser choices for the sake of what you think is an orangutan, and suddenly you become more connected with the human community right here at home and supporting people who are trying to make a living for themselves and their communities sustainably. Hmm. Besides palm oil, there are there just the conviction was overwhelming. It was everywhere I looked, in all the products in my house, and just in mm. overconsumption in general, which is mm. destroying habitat, all the things we put in landfills. I mean, there was not a choice in my life that was not touched. And mm. it's, it's a slow journey in, in order to align myself and align my choices with what I feel is more loving for the whole creation It includes things like trying to avoid plastics. And sometimes that's just not possible. Tylenol only comes in plastic bottles. Hmm. Um, But there are lots of ways we can begin to cut our use of plastics. When you read about the island of plastics floating in the Pacific Ocean that is being ingested by whales and seals and seabirds and causing their death, 
can you continue to buy plastic toothpicks, for example, or toothbrushes, mm-hmm. or any number of the millions of products that are plastic? Um, I became, during the writing of this book, I'll just give one more example, because as I say, it affects every aspect of our lives and has affected every aspect of my life. During the writing of this book, I became a vegan. I had been a vegetarian for 35 years, but became a vegan because it was clear to me that animal agriculture of all kinds, including dairy and eggs, were contributing to the loss of habitat, the pollution of waterways, the pollution of the air, and the oppression of marginal groups of people, especially illegal aliens and immigrants who are often the ones who work in these big egg and dairy plants in mm. order to, to feed their families on this side of the border and on the other side of the border. So I be I changed all my food choices too. But wow. there I do want to point out that there are no perfect choices and or pure choices. I wanna make that clear and not come across as holier than thou here. Um, every choice we make is <laughs> in this world is corrupted in some way. But sure. we can begin to open our eyes and not just do the easy thing the thing that's given to us by our culture because it's the soup we swim in and we don't know any better. We can begin to know better and we can make choices, but it will take time and it will take money. Yeah. I, I spent a year not eating meat as kind of an experiment in learning more about food ethics and where food comes from. And on one level it was so helpful. And on one level it was so overwhelming because you realize and are challenged in like where where do vegetables come from and how is it that vegetables arrive at the supermarket precisely when they need to be there to be ripe but but what brought them there and what um were the implications of the oil that was required to get them there and i think that's such a good encouragement that even though it can be overwhelming to not let that be a reason to do nothing that that there's somewhere we can start and I love that sentence you said, not a choice that is untouched, but will be untouched by this journey. And that can feel a bit overwhelming. But for the person listening to this conversation who maybe hasn't dove in super deep at this point into understanding consumer choices or food waste or climate change and kind of the implications of human action therein, what would be maybe just one small step if you're to say, hey, start here and and don't let it be overwhelming at the onset. What would one bit of encouragement be that you might have for them? Yeah, I want to add too, before I talk about one choice, that there are lots of people out there on this journey sharing their choices and products they found and ways mm-hmm. they found to live consciously in love for other Mm. creatures, including other human creatures. And one of the ways that I stay encouraged to keep trying to do the more difficult thing in love is by joining these groups, even on Facebook um, or in my local community, to be encouraged by other choices and to learn from them. Oh, that's where I can buy shampoo in a bar that doesn't have palm oil and doesn't use any plastic And it's made by Bridget in her garage and helps support her community and her family. I can learn from those people. So then it becomes 
a community building joy rather sure. than this long slog I make alone. Um, I think, Abby, to answer your question directly, the place to begin is to look at the number of things you buy hmm. and say, do I need that? Do I really need another pair of shoes? Do I really need another cruise or flight to wherever? Am I using this vacation as a way to avoid living presently in the present where I am right now? I think we just, that overconsumption is real. I don't know if it's at the heart, if I want to go that far, but our overconsumption of all things from leisure activities to food is at the heart of, I guess I am saying it's at the heart of this degradation of the natural world and therefore making life untenable for other species. Yeah, that question, do I really need this? <laughs> right. And that's why addressing this has to begin with the industrialized, wealthy West. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we can go to India and say, change your life and protect these species because you've done it all wrong. We start here with our lifestyle. Hmm. And, and we do it not to flog ourselves or to live as ascetics, but now knowing what we're doing to North Atlantic right whales and laysan albatrosses and black-footed ferrets, we can't do otherwise. But love just won't let us do otherwise. The love of God won't let us be complacent and keep our heads in the sand any longer. Yeah, that's rich. That's beautiful. I want to turn, switch gears a little bit, not entirely, just a little bit, because one of the things I love about your writing is just the attention to detail, which I know is kind of the mark of a, of a great writer. But I want to read this excerpt from the chapter on the black-footed ferret, just so our listeners can kind of get a, a little bit of a glimpse of what I'm talking about. On a mound of dirt on a windcomb prairie in northern Wyoming, the rarest mammal in North America is dancing. He prances and bucks, then stops, then hops forward, forward, backward, side hop, left, spins around, and dives into the hole at the center of the mound. A four-beat wait. His black bandit mask peeks over the rim. Then he flings the muscular tube of his torso out again into the prairie dawn, bounding, twisking, frisking for an audience of none. He is fully grown an adult, not a play-inclined kit. His jaunty moves are not meant to confuse predator, prey, attract a mate, or warn companions. The only reason for his dance is ferretness. Curious and quick, lithe and strong, black-footed ferrets often dance just because they are, just because they can. <laughs> I just read that and I delighted in it. Like I, um, the the way that you capture this animal who often is is you know, we just don't do that. We don't delight in nature in this way. And something about your ability to pay attention and capture who he is. And I feel like there's a, there's a connection here that I want to make. And I'm curious about in your own life regarding human connection and how we pay attention to each other. There's a holistic listening to animals as I've been reading through wild, wild Lent that has inspired me. You watch, you see, you pay attention. Things Jesus modeled so well. And 
that discipline, I think, is something that we're increasingly disinclined to towards, at least in the United States. Just this ability to actually be holy with another person or another animal and how that equips us to see people differently mm-hmm. as well as creation. And so I'm curious how that journey for you, kind of in this this space we're living in, in this moment in history where there are echo chambers and division and people separated from one another, has it changed your ability to connect with what is different or has it inspired your ability to do that? Hmm. I think they go together. My paying attention to the natural world, which comes almost naturally. I just can't, I cannot help but love the red squirrel that I was watching just before you called, uh, (laughs) run up and down the tree trunk outside and chase the fox squirrel away from the feeder and then pack his pouches full and run away to his mate. I just can't help but laugh and watch, and I could stand at that window all day. That, in a way, comes naturally to me. I don't, I don't know when it started, and I haven't been aware of doing anything to cultivate it, except that I, I love doing it, and I just keep doing more of what I love, whether it's with a black-footed ferret. And I've never seen a live black-footed ferret. I've only seen them in the videos that I watched to write mm. the book. Um, whether it's those or the fox squirrels outside my window. But I I do think that paying attention to these creatures does have some transference to paying attention to both the humorous and the not-so-humorous parts of human behavior. You learn to see the, the delightful quirks and individuality of each creature and mm. to delight in it. I'm not answering your question very well because it does, I'm not aware of parsing it out quite so distinctly as a discipline. You know, I just... It just comes naturally to you. It's part of who you are. Well, I will say, though, and I recall saying this in the introduction to my first book, All Creation Waits, that animals are our guides and our teachers. And watching the animals, I have learned to do this with humans. And you can watch animals watching each other. They pay very close attention to each other. It's a matter of survival. And so maybe watching the creatures watch each other has told me uh, how fulsome life can be when you watch others of your own species too. Absolutely. Well, it encouraged me this idea that seeing and listening is a, it's something that is a full body experience. It takes I know you wouldn't use the word effort. As as you said, it comes naturally to you. But I felt in your words this invitation to be more present just to animals to be sure, but to to people as well. Like that's it struck me at how, you know, I I love that they dance just to dance. They <laughs> they're in and they're out and they're up and they're down and they're looking around and it's like I know this animal in a way that I would never have thought or hoped or anticipated, and yet I've I'm so I'm so there. I'm so with it, and I think there's. Yeah, a, think, I'm going to interrupt a second here because yeah, it just occurs to me. Think of the reasons that we don't pay attention to others, whether it's other species or other human beings. It's because we haven't cracked open that husk of self preoccupation, 
Lent is a perfect time, but all all through the year, when that husk of self-preoccupation is broken open by the grace and the love of God, then suddenly we flow out of ourselves and we can take note of others on the planet. And we can say, it's not all about me. Look at what God inhabits. The spirit of the eternal universal Christ is streaming through this creation, whether it's Mm. my crazy neighbor or whether it's this corgi that's lying here beside my desk, or it's the fox squirrel outside. And Mm -hmm. so we become just caught up. The Spirit of God breaks us open in order to let us be caught up in the Spirit of God, which will further crack us open. It becomes this wonderful water wheel of grace in our lives. I I know you can't see my face, but I'm sitting here just smiling um, and thinking, man, that will preach. (laughs) Like, as as a... Someone who gives sermons myself, I'm just smiling, thinking about what what truth in in those words. Um, I want to move now to the the one of the final uh, stories that you offer is your story for Easter, which is about the recovery of horses in Tibet. And I was wondering if you could share that story with our listeners, and maybe talk about why you chose it for Easter. Yeah, the the, the horses are in Mongolia, actually. Um, up on the steppe, though, that land, that uh, environment, that ecosystem uh, spans Mongolia, Russia, Ukraine. And in fact, there are now herds of these horses, which the Mongolian nomads call taki. It's their word for spirit. Um, and they call these horses, these wild horses, taki, because they were elusive and untamable. Hmm. Uh Western science, of course, called them Shavalsky's horse after the Russian scientist who brought in a dead one for analysis. But the nomads who have known them, known them since time immemorial call them spirit horses, Taki. They vanished in the wild in 1969, in part because people were encroaching on their habitat for grazing domesticated animals, but also because Europeans and Americans, knowing they were the last wild horse, wanted to capture them and make them not wild and came to Mongolia, came to the steppe and captured them for zoos and circuses in America and Europe. They went extinct in the wild. And at about the same time, there were conservationists in Europe and the Americas who saw this extinction coming. coming. So in the mid-50s, they began a captive breeding program. The captured ones did not do well, actually, in captivity. So of all the hundreds that were captured for zoos and circuses, only 12 survived by the mid-1950s. Wow. So scientists in Europe and in America began a captive breeding program to increase that number to increase the 12 before the species went extinct. In 1970, as the breeding program was going on, in France, a Swiss woman in 1970 saw these taki. She saw them in zoos, and she saw the way ancient peoples had painted them on cave walls, and she fell in love with these wild horses. She Hmm. devoted, in 1970, she was a young woman in her early 20s. She began to devote her life to Shabalski's horse, or the Taki. She bought 11 of them from European zoos, 
and released them into the wild. Against all the advice of conservationists, she released them into the wild on a protected plateau in southern France that she had bought, that she owned. And there on that plateau, these 11 horses multiplied and they relearned their wildness. They became Taki again. When her herd was 55 members strong, she decided it was time to reintroduce the Taki to take them home. So she selected 12 and she and her organization, by this time it had grown to a sizable nonprofit, she put them in small crates on a cargo plane and flew them the 45 hours it took to get back to the Mongolian steppe, their natural wild home. On a landing strip, some of the Mongolian nomads gathered to see Taki again, some of them for the first time, others remembering the wild horses they had seen as children. And as the crates were lined up on the landing strip, these nomads blessed the Taki in their crates and then threw open the slatted doors. And these Taki raced out onto the step, released into their ancestral home. I get chills just telling the story again. That was in the early 19, that was in the early 2000s. Today, some 20 years later, there are now 2,000 Taki roaming their wild home in Mongolia, Russia, Ukraine. And not just this woman's nonprofit, but several other nonprofits and governments too have gotten into the act of protecting the Taki. In fact, in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, which is a zone that was declared dead after the Chernobyl nuclear reactor exploded in 1986. There's a herd that thrives in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So wow. a horse that was on the verge of going extinct with 12 members only existing in zoos in Europe has now been brought back, released, and growing to herds of, a herd of 2,000 members in their ancestral home. That, to me, is a story of resurrection. And so that's why I wanted to present that story for Easter Sunday. It shows what happens when people who are consumed with love for a creature, devoted to it, as Paul says in the fourth chapter of Romans, can bring back, by the grace of God, can call into being things that were not. Hmm. That picture of Chernobyl and this place of tragedy and death becoming a place that's full of life and hope. And if that doesn't encapsulate the heart of the resurrection of Christ, I don't, I don't know what does yeah. <laughs> in a, and not just in a, not just in a uh, Ill illustrative way that, you know, not in a metaphorical way, but in a very like real gritty, earthy <laughs> material yeah. way. This is, this is a picture of, of Easter hope. Yes. And it Thank can you. happen for all the species that are endangered on the earth. It only takes our falling more deeply in love with them. The old conservation paradigm says we save what we love and mm. we love what we know. And mm. that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people, including myself, to come mm. to know these animals. And then when you know them, when you know their amazingness and you know their peril, then you begin to love them. And when you love them, you will make the hard choices that it will take to save them. You know, my last question, Gail, was how do you hope people will be changed or transformed for having read Wild Hope? 
And I feel like you just answered it before I asked it. We save what we love and we love what we know. This idea that we would come to know, to love, and to care, that that would be embodied in how we interact with the world around us. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for being here again. I know I speak on behalf of our community of listeners when I say your wisdom touches us deeply and invites us gently but urgently into this life of wholeness that we we long to live. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I would be, it would be remiss of me to end this conversation without just again highlighting the work that Gail has done. Um, her first book, is it, did All Creation Waits come first? Yes, Okay, I, that's what I thought. All creation waits. It can function as a devotional, but it is meant to be ingested and um, embraced. And Wild Hope is a um, stories for Lent. Um, and we dove a bit deeper in that today. But I would encourage you, especially this Lent, if you're able to get your hands on a copy of that, you will be enriched because of it. Thank you, Gail, again, for your time and your wisdom. Um, and for being an extended part of this little family, which is Toward Wholeness. Well, thank you, Abby. I, I need to write another book just so I can be on again. I really enjoy conversations <laughs> with you and with Richard. You all are wonderful conversation partners. Well, thank you, Gail. And um, thank you, listeners. We loved having you join us for this really important um, Lent conversation. And we look forward to being with you again soon.